This is Mike Azenko. Thank you for joining us on another podcast discussion today. We are very fortunate to be joined with Kate almquist Kanop, Director of the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, an academic institution within the Department of Defense located on the beautiful grounds of Fort McNair, otherwise known as National Defense University. Kate has been there since July 2014. Before then, she held many senior positions at the U.S. Agency for International Development, working on issues related to conflict, uh, development, and Africa specifically. She's also worked for the amazing institutions, the Crisis Management Initiative, and the Center for Global Development. To learn more about the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, I invite everyone to check out their work at africacenter.org. That's africacenter.org. And you can follow Kate on Twitter as well at AlmquistKate. That's at A-L-M-Q-U-I-S-T-Kate. Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Micah. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Thank you. And one of the, we wanted to talk first about your amazing council special report, Ending South Sudan Civil War. South Sudan is one of these countries that was seen as a uh, success, uh, a country deservedly obtaining its independence uh, after the work of the Bush and Obama administration. And since then, it's been on the crisis watch list for every uh, non-governmental organizations from uh, impending famine to genocide to economic collapse. Give us an idea of what's going on in South Sudan now for those of us on the outside who don't watch it so closely. Sure. Um, yes, you're right. Uh, sadly, uh, since achieving independence in uh, 2011, uh, it had about uh, uh, two years, two and a half years of uh, relative um, peace, working through its early moments of statehood. Um, and then in December 2013, it uh, descended into a full-scale civil war as a result of a contest between the president of the country and his former first vice president, two individuals, Salvakir and Riyak Mashar, uh, and a couple other uh, senior leaders within the ruling party competing over who would be standing for president uh, of the country next. That broke into a violent fight uh, after a contentious party meeting uh, in uh, mid-December 2013, and uh, the city basically went up in flames, uh, the capital city, in terms of uh, all-out uh, fighting there and uh, really significant targeting of the Nuer population, uh, from which the first vice president, Dr. Rick Mashar, comes from uh, in the city. That led to a cycle of revenge killings in other parts of the country of the president's tribe, uh, and we quickly devolved into an ethnic war. It was initially contained uh, to a few areas of the country where the Dinka and the Nuer populations are most prominent. Uh, sadly, now, three years into this war, it engulfs the entire country, and uh, nearly all ethnic groups are uh, aggrieved in some way or another uh, by what's going on, uh, and we have many layers of conflict uh, taking place, but uh, the most fundamental one being the government against uh, key portions of its people, that it uh, feels are opposed to it, uh, and uh, in fact, many parts of the, the population of South Sudan uh, do feel under attack by the government and you know, without recourse other than taking up arms. And so uh, right now we see the drivers of the conflict moving us further uh, towards violence. Uh, we have high-level warnings from the UN, uh, from the various uh, human rights monitoring commissions. Uh, all saying that uh, the risks of genocide are very real. Uh, the indicators are there. They're present. Uh, they grow stronger with each day. Uh, and the country uh, is in a state of immense humanitarian distress, maybe second only to Syria uh, in the world uh, mm. at this point. Famine uh, is already evident in certain parts of the country, and wide-scale famine uh, is a deep concern for this year, 2017. And, and really, we just have extreme state failure across the board. 
And that because it's a, a state in such political and, and economic and uh, uh, ethnic crisis, the regional actors, the United Nations, have been deeply immersed trying to compel the parties to get back together, either to return to 2013 or to something else. What is the state of the peace process uh, today? So there um, is an effort uh, that has been led by the sub-regional organization for the Horn of Africa, EGAD, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, uh, with the backing of the African Union and uh, uh, the further endorsement of the United Nations. That resulted in a peace agreement in August 2015, which was predicated on a power-sharing arrangement uh, principally between Salva Kiir uh, and Riek Machar, and not uh, too dissimilar from what we saw as the basic outline of the comprehensive peace agreement uh, that led to the independence of South Sudan from uh, Khartoum. Many of the same kinds of elements, power sharing and wealth sharing and uh, security arrangements were repeated. The problem with this arrangement is that um, power sharing doesn't work in South Sudan and it specifically doesn't work uh, between these two individuals, right. Salvatore and Riek Machar. So we have a transitional government of national unity uh, in name uh, in Juba, but uh, in reality it's uh, not uh, transitioning the country to anything. Uh, other than more war. It's neither nationally representative nor unifying. In fact, uh, Riek Machar was run out of the capital city and out of the country uh, in July of 2016, and uh, since then has been um, physically isolated uh, and prevented from returning to the region even. But specifically uh, within South Sudan and politically, he's been replaced in the, this uh, uh, power-sharing arrangement uh, by his former chief negotiator, who, you know, frankly, uh, most uh, South Sudanese experts and analysts uh, agree does not re represent uh, the opposition right. uh, movement nor the key new air constituency. So we have a transitional government with one side only uh, is where it is. And, and uh, in essence, the, this peace process uh, really has collapsed on itself. Uh, and run aground, and uh, it's past time now for the international community, uh, the African Union, the regional organization, to recognize that and move to a, a, a new political process that can take the country forward. And the United States has been focused on first brokering an end to the, to the civil war in Sudan, and the Obama administration has always been focused on South Sudan. What has been uh, U.S. role and what leverage does it have to try to sway the various actors in South Sudan? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the U.S., uh, uh, along with uh, key partners, uh, the United Kingdom and Norway, constituting a, a so-called troika uh, on the north-south uh, peace process, uh, uh, still remains somewhat relevant, not quite as um, uh, as uh, uh, powerful behind the scenes as it was uh, previously. Uh, the U.S. Um, put its weight behind the August 2015 uh, EGAD agreement that was uh, critical to getting uh, President Kiir to sign on to it. He did that very reluctantly uh, and even articulated a long list of reservations, uh, all of which uh, he's been faithful to uh, mm -hmm. in terms of not uh, implementing this uh, uh, peace agreement and, in fact, undercutting it in, in a number of uh, uh, severe ways. Um, the United States did propose an arms embargo resolution uh, at the UN Security Council just last month in December of 2016. Unfortunately, it failed to get the nine votes uh, necessary to pass, even though there were no vetoes uh, against it. Uh, and so uh, we didn't uh, see uh, the needed movement there. That would have been important both symbolically uh, to tell the parties and, and uh, especially the government that continuing to prosecute this war is completely outside of any uh, legitimate uh, framework that uh, the international community recognizes. Uh, and it substantively would, I believe, and uh, arms experts who are, are monitoring the 
flows there, um, help to, to diminish the heavy weaponry that the government has at its disposal and mm-hmm. that it is using against its civilian populations. Attack helicopters, amphibious tanks, and uh, other uh, large pieces of equipment that require outside maintenance, uh, if not um, uh, pilots in the case of the helicopters, uh, to run, and where the international pressure of an arms embargo uh, could have some impact on at least taking those uh, tools off the table. And, and can I ask, who is arming and supplying and contracting and resupplying the government's heavy weapons? So the UN panel of experts has been uh, monitoring this, uh, as have other groups like the Small Arms Survey, and it it seems, as best as I've understood it, that um, much of the arms uh, flowing to the government, uh, to Juba right now, uh, are flowing via Uganda. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where they're getting resources uh, to procure these arms uh, continues to remain a mystery. The the economy, as you you noted briefly, has collapsed entirely. Uh, The the government is broke, uh, and uh, uh, with the very... uh, little trickle of oil revenues it, it still gets. You know, the fact that it's uh, using that to, to buy uh, arms and, and ammunition is, is pretty discouraging. And the role of, of Uganda seemingly in, in helping to, to facilitate that, uh, of, of course, is, is not helpful. It's not illegal uh, or sure. you know, against any international prohibition, just to be clear. You know, the attack helicopters seem to have um, uh, perhaps Ukrainian uh, pilots uh, or other um, non-African uh, contractors and they're providing support uh, on, on those uh, pieces of equipment. So um, so it, it would seem that uh, an international arms embargo could have some impact on uh, changing the calculus of uh, those various parties who are still serving as conduits uh, of, of arming you know, the government, which, of course, it claims it's doing out of self-defense sure. and, uh, you know, it's part of a government. But this is a government that um, really has no legitimacy left to, to sure. it. It doesn't have territorial control, doesn't have a monopoly over coercive force, it's not providing basic security to its citizens, it's not delivering any public services or administering justice. Uh, and, in fact, uh, we see this heavy weaponry and uh, uh, other tools at its disposal being used against its citizens in the most egregious fashion and, and in a well-documented way. So, so to continuing to facilitate it is um, uh, isn't, isn't helpful. An arms embargo, you know, it wouldn't uh, be the be-all, end-all, sure. of course. Uh, what we really need is, is a new political strategy uh, uh, for the country that takes it forward. And you know, the U.S. Uh, being the pen holder in New York uh, at the Security Council on this, uh, a lot of eyes do look uh, to the United States uh, to help lead on that front. And uh, it will be important to see what the role is going forward. And let's talk about what, what could be a, a new political framework. You somewhat controversially recommend in your uh, great report ending South Sudan Civil War for a clean break, establishing a temporary international transitional administration, which would be managed by the UN and the AU. Uh, This has been done before in other post-conflict countries, but it requires a lot of coordination. It requires a lot of of sort of shepherding of uh, international actors and outside parties. why did you come to this conclusion, and how could it be plausibly implemented? So I think uh, when we look at, uh, uh, again, the really extreme degree of state failure taking place in South Sudan and the fact that after three years of trying to stop this conflict uh, from continuing on every metric we can uh, uh, think of uh, to consider, uh, South Sudan continues to deteriorate. People are hiding in swamps. Two-thirds of the country is on in need of food assistance. Uh, probably 40% of them are at risk of uh, famine level uh, starvation at the moment. 
you know, we have the genocide uh, warnings, uh, as, you've, uh, as we've talked about already. Everything, uh, this, this idea that we can just divvy up, uh, redivide, uh, you know, the political and economic power of the country in some way and uh, set everybody back on a course for elections and uh, have a, a better outcome, you know, there's no evidence that that will work. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was tried uh, and it failed again miserably last summer in 2016. Uh, and uh, it's past time, I think, uh, for the people of South Sudan that you know, the international community you know, look at other options and, and consider other ways that we have helped uh, other countries come out of really uh, bitter conflicts, deadly conflicts, uh, and uh, uh, consider those experiences and uh, look at uh, the further tools available. Now, this is a country uh, really with a deficit of legitimate power. It's not that just that it's in the wrong hands uh, and authority and uh, uh, legitimacy. It's a country without any of the basic institutions of governance. It was a brand new country in 2011, uh, decades of uh, civil war uh, before that, and no meaningful form of governance during those prior years, uh, either by the, uh, the government in Khartoum Kurt, or right. even under colonial right, uh, right. you know, administration. So, so given all of that, uh, it's not surprising uh, that there's a, a, a shallowness uh, to the resources available uh, inside South Sudan to, to deal with this, and more importantly, the fact that the, the formal and informal institutions and checks and balances aren't there to help channel you know, the resources that South Sudan does have towards the benefit of its people, um, it's, it's normal to borrow both some external legitimacy and uh, some external competency for some time. And what I hope the paper, uh, the report does is to help see this idea in that light. Uh, and in fact, uh, that there are precedents. There's no one perfect analogy to this situation for South Sudan, uh, but there certainly are other precedents and uh, experiences that we can draw from Cambodia, East Timor, Kosovo, uh, Liberia, uh, Namibia, in different ways. Um, uh, you know, we can go on and, and think of some others that would help to protect South Sudan's uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity first and foremost by. Uh, allowing an external uh, administration to uh, calm the fighting down and uh, to give a breathing space uh, for South Sudanese citizens to really decide what they want for the future of their country. But right now, uh, basic survival uh, isn't even a, a sure thing. So we have to get back uh, to that, uh, which I think first and foremost the people of South Sudan uh, want, uh, and then uh, secondly look at uh, these political processes that, that need to take place uh, to you know, to reset the path uh, for South Sudan and to ensure that these um, spillover effects that uh, we're seeing you know, in increasing measure uh, as the crisis deepens and worsens, uh, population displacements going into Uganda, into Ethiopia, Kenya, Sudan, even DRC and, and Central African Republic, the implications of that for regional instability uh, in the Horn of Africa is, is, is quite significant, and we already have some worrying signs after uh, Salva Kiir's recent visit to Cairo uh, last week right. that those geopolitics are, are getting more complex and why did he go? Why did he go to Cairo? What was what was the thinking there? It seems that there is a, uh, an alliance uh, emerging between Juba and Cairo, uh, and uh, there's. Um, uh, 
concerned that there's now support coming from Cairo to the regime in Juba. Mm. Uh, I think we can look uh, to some of the, the geopolitics around the Nile and the dam that's being built in Ethiopia uh, to understand uh, some of that. Egypt's uh, not happy with uh, the development of, of this dam and the right. implications for the Nile. South Sudan has taken the Egyptian perspective uh, in that issue. Uh, Khartoum Sudan has taken the Ethiopian perspective. So, so we have uh, Sudan and Ethiopia lining up on one side. We have Egypt and South Sudan lining up on another side. Uh, and the real potential, if not already reality, of South Sudan being used as a uh, a, a proxy space for this um, uh, uh, contest uh, over how that uh, will get resolved playing out. So uh, everybody's got opposition forces uh, and, you know, movements, and uh, so there's lots of opportunity for, you know, uh, uh, countries to, to um, play games with each other in that, that situation. And, and since the, the report came out uh, for establishing this temporary international transitional administration, what has been the reaction within uh, the uh, political parties in South Sudan to what you propose? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, the government of South Sudan is sure. uh, uh, not supportive, uh, <laughs> right. and you know they're the ones benefiting from the current uh, situation. Uh, so I, I think we take that uh, with with a, a huge grain of salt. And uh, there have been varied responses uh, from uh, other elements uh, uh, within uh, South Sudan. A few voices have come out very publicly, uh, calling for some kind of external administration. And, and uh, of course, there would be a lot of details to be worked out. Uh, and most importantly, would be some um, representation or voice of the South Sudanese people requesting this form of support from the international community. The idea is no way to impose it uh, on the country. Uh, and so um, how you uh, how you do that is, is of course, uh, um, uh, poses a lot of um, significant questions. But uh, as we try, uh, try and lay out in the report, uh, there are some ways forward, uh, and first step of that would have to be to getting uh, the two uh, principal uh, political figures, uh, Salva Kiir and Riek Mishar, uh, to step aside. Uh, there's a combination of, of uh, carrots and sticks, uh, I think, that could be uh, employed uh, to do that. Uh, there's a lot of debate, uh, of course, um, within South Sudanese and regional communities about uh, how to do that and uh, what such a, uh, an external administration could look like. But, you know, interesting one of the African Union um, commissioners of the Commission of Inquiry that was stood up to look at uh, uh, what happened after the outbreak of the war in December 2013 and into 2014 uh, has been calling uh, for, uh, he would say, an AU, uh, external administration of the country. Um, Some of the South Sudanese political leaders uh, uh, have called for it publicly. Others uh, do express understanding of the need for it privately. And I think, for me, what I hope is happening, and I have uh, some indications that uh, within the South Sudanese community, is that there's uh, a real stock taking going on in terms of uh, what's happened since independence, uh, since this uh, war broke out, uh, and what the resources could be for helping South Sudan get back on the path of viability, back on the path towards prosperity uh, for all of its people, uh, and uh, a more pragmatic consideration of you know, the resources that you know, it could draw on uh, and the experiences that have ha- helped other countries come out of this situation. And that conversation is now underway uh, amongst uh, different South Sudanese constituencies. So that's and, encouraging. And one one of the things you recommend is for the Trump administration to has to play some role, has to be interested in this, has to act uh, ideally quickly, but 
Africa has not been at the forefront of concerns, uh, certainly in the confirmation hearing for uh, Rex Tillerson. Uh, President Trump hasn't said much as well. Um, other than a lessening degree of support potentially for the UN and other multilateral institutions that the US is a partner in, uh, what would you propose in an ideal world that the Trump administration could do to help kickstart this process in South Sudan, and how probable do you think that is? Um, a lot is in flux, uh, uh, as you note. Uh, we're in early days still of, of the Trump administration, and um, uh, uh, it's not unexpected that attention hasn't turned to, to Africa quite yet in terms of the foreign policy uh, appointments uh, and uh, given the other things going on in the world. However, uh, it is imperative if we're going to arrest uh, what's happening in South Sudan and uh, turn it uh, uh, in a different direction, that um, that we do act quickly and that we act clearly uh, in terms of how the United States uh, sees the crisis that's uh, under unfolding there uh, and uh, what attention it will give it. Um, ideally, uh, we would have uh, another special envoy uh, on uh, Sudan in South Sudan. I hate to say that because we've had more than 15 years of special envoys, and at some point we need to move to a more normal way of relating to both of these countries. Uh, but at the moment, uh, the immensity of this crisis in South Sudan in particular, I think, requires that we take a regional perspective to what's going on, uh, as we were just discussing, uh, and that we're very clear uh, at the outset that we need a new political process going forward. The fact of the matter is that the United States does hold the pen on this issue at the Security Council. It's not right. going away. South Sudan is one of, I think, four countries on the planet where we've got more than one million uh, refugees uh, uh, outside the country already. Uh, the UN is responsible uh, inside South Sudan specifically for over 220,000 South Sudanese who are sheltering at uh, unmissed compounds and bases and what's now called these protection of civilian sites, in essence, safe zones. Uh, and so uh, continuing uh, as as problematic as unmissed has been and uh, uh, the challenges uh, of the UN in this situation, continuing to support and protect uh, those citizens in particular, uh, as well as uh, um, the, the millions of South Sudanese who do need humanitarian assistance. Uh, to continue uh, to survive uh, will be vitally important. So it's going to confront the United States uh, uh, at the UN Security Council level. It's going to require some response, some action. Uh, people will be looking for leadership uh, from the U.S. Uh, so I'm hopeful that the Trump administration uh, will take seriously the immensity of the crisis there, that uh, we won't want to see a genocide uh, uh, unfold, and uh, that we'll, we'll move forward with um, some clear new policies that could help to arrest the situation. Well, our fingers are crossed, and um, bless you for doing the work to promote that, that cause in Washington, D.C. The um, final question we ask everybody here, uh, if you could go back to an earlier, younger version of yourself, uh, <laughs> what advice would you give to either young Africanists or people interested in regional conflict prevention issues and starting off their careers? What do you tell the young people? Um, one one thing I say to uh, to younger colleagues is um, to be open to collecting uh, different experiences. Um, I've been fortunate uh, in my career to have uh, uh, an array of opportunities, uh, none of which I necessarily could have uh, designed or uh, written a strategy to go get, uh, sure. shall we say. Uh, and so being available and, and, and open uh, as uh, doors open and uh, pathways 
uh, emerge uh, is one thing. I, I think a second thing is um, to to um, find somebody that you respect and admire and can learn from uh, and uh, follow them. Uh, that's almost as important as uh, whatever the job responsibilities are or the location or uh, some of the other uh, elements that, that we uh, typically look at. Um, I, I've learned a lot from uh, my bosses and mentors over the years, and, and that's been a, a really um, uh, important factor and, again, other opportunities coming uh, to the fore. Um, I think for Africanists, uh, being in Africa is so important. Uh, sure. Africa is, uh, uh, of course, an immense uh, continent, uh, 54 countries, very diverse. Uh, it's hard to be an expert uh, in all of that, uh, so we shouldn't pretend to, to be so. I fell into uh, working on South Sudan and Sudan uh, very early, 1995, was my first visit uh, there, so more than 20 years ago. Wow. Um, and uh, it, it's uh, it's been um, uh, an exhilarating uh, experience uh, to see it uh, achieve some amazing successes, and it's been heartbreaking at the same time. But uh, over that, I think what's interesting for Africa, uh, more particularly, and I, I suspect other parts of the world too, is is this whole relationship between the state and society. And um, Sudan and South Sudan present uh, two. Um, um, particular cases of how that relationship has uh, worked out or not been worked out and, and what the ramifications are, I think that's going to be ever more important as, as we see the world order uh, increasingly in flux uh, and uh, up for renegotiation as we look at the um, trends uh, uh, emerging for Africa. By 2050, one in four people on the planet will be African, and uh, the immensity of uh, the challenges that, that states and societies will confront on the continent uh, leads uh, an enormous amount of work to be done and to, to continue to understand. Uh, but it also suggests that uh, maybe nation states aren't going to be the way forward uh, for Africa mm. in dealing with all of these, the sub-regional organizations uh, and uh, cities uh, increasingly are going to be uh, where uh, citizens find uh, governance and where they find solutions to um, some of the collective security challenges uh, confronting the continent. Well, that sounds like a, a fresh and interesting approach on thinking outside of longstanding sort of political boundaries and frameworks um, and lots of work to be done because it's certainly an upward trending issue and in, in, uh, in geography. So thank you, Kate, again so much for joining us. I invite you, please go look at her work, Africa Center for Strategic Studies, africacenter.org is the website, and read her new council special report, Ending South Sudan Civil War. Kate, thank you so much for giving us the time. Thank you, Michael.